would you welcome Dave Brickner, the uh, director of Jews for Jesus and our beloved brother. Thank you so much. Shalom. It's great to be here. I think this is the first time, though, that I've been here in this December, the month of December, and uh, it's such a treat to be able to come at the Christmas season and to uh, be at Valley. You guys have been a part of uh, sharing in the ministry of Jews for Jesus for a long, long time, and your pastor, Phil, has been especially uh, a brother and a counselor and a friend to me, and I'm so grateful. And in fact, uh, just last night, uh, Phil and Carolyn invited me to come to their house for dinner and then to come and w see the wonderful Christmas program that was here last night. And uh, if you had a chance to see that yet, boy, tonight is the last night you want to make sure to come. But I laughed and I cried. You know, it's easy to get people to laugh, but what you, when they're crying and laughing, you know that you've got something special. And, uh, you know... You say, well, what's a Jewish guy interested in celebrating all this Christmas stuff for? Well, you know what? I'm a Jew for Jesus, so I get the best of both worlds. <laughs> and I tell you, I'm jealous that my Jewish people don't have the joy of this season in their lives. And that's part of what drives me in Jews for Jesus. I mean, Christmas is a Jewish holiday, or at least it should be. After all, it's the celebration of the greatest Jew that ever lived, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. So I long for my Jewish people to, to get the joy of Jesus at Christmas. And uh, there's a wistfulness in the hearts of many Jewish people because they see the beauty. They are drawn to the songs in fact, God has used Christmas carols to bring Jews to Jesus. Born is the King of Israel. Well, why is that not for Jewish people, you know? So instead, we have Hanukkah. And you know, Hanukkah was actually a, a minor festival for much of Jewish history. But with the ascendancy of Christmas, not only as the cultural phenomenon that it is, but, you know, of course, the, the beauty of it all. Hanukkah becomes kind of like a, a Jewish Christmas in the minds of many people. It's a way to help the kids through the season, you know, in the family. And uh, that's at least the way many Jewish people understand it. And that's unfortunate. For many of my people, Chris, uh, Hanukkah and all of the festivals are like this. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> but that's unfortunate because actually the, the festival means a whole lot. In fact, I want you to appreciate Hanukkah. It's part of your heritage too. When God broke down that middle wall of partition in Jesus, making us one together in Him, making all who follow the Messiah children of Abraham by faith, you get all the good stuff too. And Hanukkah is part of that, and I hope you'll see that. In fact, I've been so bold today as to say that Christmas itself would be impossible without Hanukkah. And I think you'll understand 
as we look at the Scriptures today. Because you can search throughout all of the Hebrew Bible, the Older Testament, and you will not find one mention of the celebration of Hanukkah. It's just not there. But it is in the Bible. The only place that Hanukkah is celebrated is in the New Testament, in John chapter 10, where Jesus himself celebrates the festival. So we're going to look at that celebration of Hanukkah in John 10 together, and you're going to need a Bible because we're going to be in this text. And I think that if you understand Hanukkah, then this text, John 10, 22, we're going to go through verse 33 today. That text is just going to open up, and it's going to come alive in a new way because you're going to see that the whole background, the whole understanding of what's going on is made more real and more significant when we understand Hanukkah. Now, the reason why you won't find Hanukkah mentioned in the Older Testament is because it's the commemoration of historical events that occurred during the intertestamental period. That period between the ending of the Old Testament, the ministry of Malachi, and prior to the beginning of the New Testament and the ministry of John the Baptist. And, you know, God works in history outside of what we have in Scripture. Do you believe that? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and His promises are secure. If you can find them in the Scripture, you know that they're going to be working today, right? Well, they were working in that intertestamental period as well, but the Jewish people were having a difficult time because they were under the thumb of Syrian domination. Alexander had driven a, a, a lot of people into despair and had uh, captured the then-known world, Alexander the Great, and then he had parceled out the, 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 the whole area to his uh, generals. Seleucid and Ptolemy were two guys that kind of divided the Middle East. And the northern area was dominated by the Syrians. And there was a group of kings who called themselves Antiochus. And Antiochus IV, in about 165, 168, came down into B.C., came down into the land of Israel and captured and enslaved the Jewish people. He had a program of forced Hellenization. What that means is that he intended to turn the Jewish people into Greeks, make them worship the Greek gods of Zeus and Apollo and all of those Greek gods and goddesses that you may have learned about in school. He forced them to stop observing the law of Moses. He forced them to adopt Greek culture instead of the Jewish culture. And of all things, he went into Jerusalem he walked into the temple, and he intentionally defiled it. He set up in that holy place, the holy place unto the God of Abraham, he set up altars, statues, and he took the sacred altar that God had commanded the Jewish people to sacrifice on, and he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal. He extinguished the seven-branched menorah, the candelabra that burned in the temple as a symbol of God's eternal presence. And then, the worst of all things, he declared himself to be Epiphanes. That's the Greek word for God manifest. 
And that is the tragedy that the Jewish people found themselves in, being forced to abandon their, their faith, their culture, and then the God of Israel himself being shamed before their very eyes. What Hanukkah is all about is how God delivered the Jewish people from the wicked Antiochus IV. There was a group of Jewish men named the Maccabees, primarily a family. And these Maccabees rose up in revolt against the Syrian army. And though they were vastly outnumbered, nevertheless, they were able, through first guerrilla warfare, and then drawing other Jews to their cause to drive out the Syrian army. They recaptured Jerusalem, and in 165 B.C., they recaptured the temple and rededicated it. And so that actually is what the Hebrew word Hanukkah means, is dedication, commemorating how God saved the Jewish people from Antiochus and from the Syrians and how the temple itself in Jerusalem was rededicated. On 25th of Kislev, 165 B.C., and so now we look at the Bible, and we see in John 10, verse 22, it says, Then came the feast of dedication. There it is right there, Hanukkah, right in the Bible. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. That's the place to be if you're going to celebrate this holiday, huh? It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area. Where else do you want to be at Hanukkah but in that great temple, one of those wonders of the world, a beautiful facility, an ornate and wonderful worship center. And he was walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now remember that because that's going to come back and be important later on. The Jews gathered around him. Now, I want to stop right there because that's a troubling phrase. The Jews gather around. Who else is going to be in the temple but the Jews? I mean, Jesus is a Jew, right? John's a Jew. So what does John mean when he says the Jews? He says it all throughout his gospel. Well, it's a specific reference to a specific group of Jewish people, particularly leaders who were opposed to Jesus, primarily from Judea, that is the southern part. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were mostly from where? From the north, from Galilee. And these were religious leaders in Jerusalem who had the religious authority and power who were from Judea. And so that's the phrase, remember that. Because we're, what we're seeing here is a confrontation unfolding. And it's not between Jesus and the Jews. It's between Jesus and Jewish leaders in the temple in Jerusalem, okay? These people gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, do you think they really were in suspense? <laughs> no, the, the tongue was firmly planted. This was a confrontation. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. <laughs> Well, he was telling them all along. And they weren't listening to him. In fact, that's what he says. They had heard it plainly, plain as a nose on their face. And some of those noses were pretty plain, I want to tell you. We talk about the map of Israel. Well, so Jesus answered, I did tell you. He did tell you. But you do not believe. That's the problem. It's not a, a hearing problem. It's not a speech problem. It's a heart problem. 
They didn't have the faith to understand, to apply what he was saying. Then he says, the miracles, some of your texts say, the works I do in my Father's name speak for me. What works were they? Well, just, just he just healed the blind man. He'd fed the, the, the multitudes. He had healed the man who was lame. These were works. These were miracles, and they spoke loudly, and that's particularly important that Jesus chose this festival to talk about and to point to his miracles because this is a season and a festival of miracles. When Jewish people greet one another at the season, we say, Nes Gadol Hayasham. Surely a great miracle happened there. In fact, one of the games that we play is with this little spinning top, which is called a dreidel. And on four sides of the dreidel are four Hebrew letters, Nun, Nun, Gimel, Hey, and Shin, which stands for Nes Gadol Hayasham. Surely a great miracle happened there. So we kind of use this spinning top and play games with chocolate coins we call Hanukkah gelt, and the kids have a lot of fun with the, with the dreidel at Hanukkah. But Jesus was using this idea, this understanding of miracles to draw attention to himself and to what his claims really were. In fact, there are three miracles that we're going to see coming out of this text. And Jesus uses the backdrop of Hanukkah, a season of miracles. And one of the, the main miracle... Uh, the first miracle on most Jewish people's minds at Hanukkah is called the miracle of light. And so, Jesus makes reference to this miracle of light. We can, does that work? That way. Point that way. <laughs> I need a miracle here. <laughs> Can you guys just change it to the next slide for me, please? The next slide is the first miracle, the miracle of light. So I need you to, there we go. Okay, thank you. The miracle of light. Now, I mentioned to you in the history of the story of Hanukkah that the uh, menorah, the sacred candelabra, had been extinguished. It's a seven-branch candelabra that burns in the temple as the symbol of God's eternal presence. And Antiochus, when he invaded the temple, extinguished that light. Now, the reason why Hanukkah is actually celebrated for eight whole nights is because when the Jewish people recaptured the temple, it was one month after the Feast of Tabernacles, and so according to the book of Maccabees, which is the historical account of what was going on at this time, they declared a one-month-late celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so eight days, and then this festival was celebrated eight days. But there were other stories that were used also to explain why Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days, and one of them has to do with light and with the miracle of light. In fact, Hanukkah is more commonly in the Jewish community called the Festival of Light because of this very story. When the Maccabees recaptured the temple, they went to relight the menorah, the seven-branch candelabra, 
only to find out that all of the oil had been defiled, broken vessels except for one, which was enough to light the menorah, but only for one day. It would take seven more days for fresh oil to be made and sanctified for use in the temple. So what should they do? They decided to go ahead and light the menorah anyway, and the miracle of light was that at that first Hanukkah, the, the, the oil, only enough for one day, lasted for eight whole days, enough time for fresh oil to be made in the temple. And so in memory of that, every Hanukkah, all around the world in Jewish homes, we light our own menorahs. Now normally, when I come to a church to talk about Hanukkah, I bring my brass or gold-colored menorah. It's a beautiful-looking kind of a, a replica of the candelabra that burned in the temple. But because I'm home here with you guys, I wanted to bring the menorah that means the most to me. This is a, a, a menorah that a dear friend of mine from Sarah Palin's church up in Wasilla, Alaska, made for me. And so you can see that it, it, it's a moose. And the moose's horns are used for the candelabras for the eight days. But see, a long time ago when I got this, I looked at this and I said, well, this is going to be our family menorah. I'm going to call it Phil. <laughs> and that's true. And so I, tried to, I thought I'd bring Phil to Valley Bible Church today as we talk about Hanukkah. And I, if you'll notice that there's not seven candles. There's not even eight. There's nine candles, you see. And this is very significant because this has to do with the miracle of light and the miracle of Messiah. You see, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, light is associated with the hope and promise of God and particularly with the coming of the Messiah. And so this menorah then becomes a symbol of that hope and the ninth candle is set up from the others. You see this white candle? The ninth candle is lit the very first night and is used to light all the other candles. It's called shamash, or servant candle. And so we use this to bring the light to all of the rest of the candles. The first night, we light just one. And by the time we get to the eighth night, which, by the way, was this past Thursday, all nine candles are burning in the window in a very public way, so we can see and so Jew Jewish people can declare their faith and hope in the promise of that light. And so I'm going to light this candle and say the blessings. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu l'hadlikner shel Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by thy commandments and commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah lights. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam she'asa nisim lavoteinu bayamim hahem azman hazeh. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has done wonders in the days of our forefathers. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam shehechianu v'kiyamanu 
Vahigyanu lasman Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us and sustained us and brought us to this season. And all of these blessings have to do with the miracles, miracles that Jesus is drawing to the minds of the Jewish leaders in the temple as they're celebrating Hanukkah. And the first, of course, is this miracle of light. The shamash, the servant, is a symbol of that light. It reminds us of what God did in the temple at Hanukkah, but it also reminds us of the promise of the light that is to come. And Jesus had claimed to be that light. His opening of the eyes of the blind man just previous to this event was evidence not just of his miracle-working power, but of the promise, what? That he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he said when he opened the blind man's eyes. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus was claiming to be the shamash, the servant. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 49. You know, Isaiah gives us the gospel over and over and over again. And one of the key figures of Isaiah's prophecy is this servant. In fact, there are numerous what are called servant songs in Isaiah, the most famous of which, of course, is Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 49 is definitely part of the Hanukkah story. It begins in verse 1, but we're just going to skip right down to verse 6. God says, He says, who is He talking to? He's talking to the Messiah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore what? The tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. This idea of keeping, preserving, sustaining, that's going to be the next miracle we're going to get to. But look at what he goes on to say. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Hallelujah. This is not a plan that is just for Jews. This is not a parochial, one people kind of a purpose. This is for all peoples. When God said to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It wasn't for their benefit. He said, so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. How great is the love of God that he would send his servant, not just for Jews, but for all nations. And look, what he, he even gives the name of a servant. I will make you a light for the nations, the Gentiles. What? So that Yeshua T, my salvation... That's Jesus' name. My Jesus may reach to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. Jesus was claiming in John 7 and John 8, and now in John 10, that he is that servant, that he is that light to the nations, that he is the one who was promised. The miracles I do in my Father's name, they speak of me. Hallelujah. And there were many who did believe, but not necessarily those who were confronting him at Hanukkah. 
I did tell you, but you do not believe. You do not believe. Faith is a funny thing. It's a strange thing. I've had people who have been confronted with the truth of God's Word, and you can see their mind working to come up with an excuse of why not to believe. Then I've had people who've come, Jewish people, who basically said, what must I do to be saved? What's the difference? It's not my eloquence. It's not the power of God's Word. You do not believe because, verse 26, you are not my sheep. Now, there's another very interesting phrase, sheep and shepherd. Sometimes the sheep have some bad shepherds. Shepherds that devour the sheep. Ezekiel talks about those. And there were leaders in the Jewish community at the time that Antiochus invaded Israel who said, appeasement is the way to go. Peace at all costs. We can sacrifice a little bit of our religious tradition and culture in order to preserve our culture, in order to preserve our families. Let's not risk it by going to war and getting slaughtered by the Greeks. And they won the day for many years, but it was finally when someone really believed something and decided to stand up for it, for the Lord. And when Antiochus finally went so far as to say, I am God manifest, and sacrifice a pig on the altar. That was a bridge too far. And the Maccabees said, we believe in God. We're going to stand up. And they fought, and God did something. God did a miracle. He preserved them as a people. And this has to be one of the reasons why, without Hanukkah, Christmas would be impossible. Think about it. This happened just a century before the coming of Christ. Imagine if Antiochus had had his way. Imagine if Antiochus had forced Greek culture to the extent that all the Jews became Greeks and that they stopped observing the law, that they stopped keeping kosher, that they stopped circumcising their young boys at eight days, and they ceased to be a unique people in the world. How would Messiah have been born in the midst of a Greek people? How would the prophecies of the Jewish prophets have been fulfilled if Antiochus had had his way and the Jewish people would have been wiped out as a unique people from the face of the earth? No, you see, God was invested in the preservation of the people. When he said to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, it wasn't for their sake, it was for his sake. Because he staked his reputation on the perpetuity of the Jewish people. And so God says, I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to send you a shepherd who's going to take care of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus said. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Wow. 
This is an amazing reality because Jesus is taking the imagery of God's preserving power and he's giving it new and deeper meaning. Watch this. The preserving power of God has been seen through Jewish history despite the Hamans and the Herods and the Hitlers, despite the Antiochuses and the Ahmadinejads of history, God has preserved his people not for their namesake, but for his namesake. And this servant song that we were just looking at, flip back there, we're still talking about what the servant is going to do and the reality of why God is going to send this great shepherd of the sheep, this servant. In verse 15 of that same servant song, Isaiah asks a well-known question, an appropriate question, because Israel at that time was also in dire straits, just like they were under Antiochus, and they thought they had been forsaken, verse 14. So Isaiah says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Is there a a relationship in human experience that is more profound than that of mother and child. That was so beautiful to see that little baby over there. Come tonight. Is this wonderful? Can, can a mother forget her nursing child? Well, sadly, today we've seen that happen, haven't we? We have. We've seen it. And so Isaiah rightly answers, though she may forget... God says to Israel, I will never forget you. That's why I'm sending you the servant. I will not forget you. See, behold, look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. So great is the love of God, so deep and profound is his commitment to the preservation of Israel that he says, look, I've engraved you. On the palms of my hands. Now, Jesus is talking about this amazing preserving power of God to sustain the Jewish people in spite of the wicked intentions of Antiochus. He says, guess what? I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. No plot of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from my hand. And so committed was he to this, that he went and had them engraved and had you and me engraved in the palms of his hands when those nail-pierced hands shed that blood on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. Death was conquered. Preservation of God's people was sustained. Here's the amazing thing as we were singing before, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us now. And that's the same preserving power through which God has kept his people throughout all history. Now Jesus says, guess what? That preservation power that God has used to sustain Israel throughout history is now going to be made available to all those who hear my voice, who follow after me. Hallelujah. The miracle of preservation. Hallelujah. That's the gospel, folks. That's the power of God. It's not about where we stand at one moment or another in our salvation history. It's about God's power to keep us, to preserve us, to sustain us. And boy, today in Israel, there's no certainty of tomorrow. There's no assurance of salvation. 
And so Israel has a mighty army and a lot of nuclear weapons. And they're surrounded by enemies like Ahmadinejad, who, like Antiochus, want to wipe them out. But it is he that keepeth watch over Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. It's not the power of Israel's army, but the armies of the Lord that preserve his people because he staked his reputation on their preservation, and he has staked his reputation on yours as well if you know him, if you listen to his voice, if you follow him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And so this is the message that we have to proclaim. This is the message that Oded and Bimini are going out onto the streets of Israel to proclaim. I know that you've been paying attention to their ministry. It was a big step for Bimini for them to go to Israel because Hebrew is not her mama's tongue. <laughs> but she's doing great. And Oded is like a fish that finally found the pond. <laughs> I'm so grateful to God for them and thank you for your support of them. Pray for them as you may have heard Oded's uh, sister-in-law has been given just weeks to live because of cancer. But you know what? This has opened up the whole family to the gospel. His sister, Oded's sister, not the sister-in-law, but the sister called and said, so why do you believe in Jesus? You have to tell me. God does amazing things in the midst of trying circumstances. He's still a miracle-working God. We need to pray for them. And uh, if you, as, as Pastor Phil said, if you don't get uh, their newsletter, if you don't get our newsletter, you want to use this card and, uh, and, and fill it out and drop it here in the front. They send the most amazing prayer updates. They're really wonderful to read. And uh, so we, we want your prayers more than anything because it is the prayer of God's people that is the power of the Spirit to undergird the work of the gospel. We are facing more opposition in Israel than at any time. And it's all coming from the Jews, like John uses the phrase, the religious. Because the vast majority of Israel is secular. Oded was raised secular. And most Israelis were raised like Oded. But the religious, they feel that they have a rabbinocracy, or they want one in Israel. That is a leadership of the rabbis, that the rabbis are in charge. Well, Israel is a democracy, not a rabbinocracy. Just a few weeks ago, one of our staff, Vlad, was handing out tracts outside of the University of Tel Aviv, and two ultra-Orthodox men came up behind him, jumped him, knocked him to the ground, and broke his nose with their heel of their boot. And then they ran away laughing. And uh, Vlad spent five hours in the hospital getting his nose broke, his fixed and stitches in his lip. We have yet to catch those people, but when the law catches them, the law will prosecute. But people get away with a lot over there because the police have other priorities. But we need to pray for our, our brothers and sisters in Israel. After the first of the year, we're coming out with a, a brand new documentary uh, of our work in Israel, particularly the campaigns. It's called Flowers of the Sun, S-O-N. You know, one of the biggest crops you'll see when you go to Israel is sunflowers. When you're driving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on the right and left of the highways, the, f the fields are just filled with these sunflowers, but all of them kind of, they're looking down. And the imagery is that we want those, those flowers of the sun to look up. 
to see the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. There is a preserving power that watches over Israel, but it doesn't lead to salvation unless they turn to the Son. And your prayers and your support are key. Stop at the table after the service to uh, look at some of the literature that we have. Uh, my son and his music group, New Light Ruins, was in Israel for two years running. They wrote a whole album of songs reflecting their experiences of ministry to Israelis called You Are Home, new album from Jews for Jesus. This is something I just brought today because I thought you guys might like it. A messianic look at Christmas and Hanukkah. This is not only good for you, but uh, it's a good thing to pass along to a Jewish friend, especially at this season. So stop at the table. My heart is burdened that this past week, all over the world, Jewish people have lit this menorah. I don't think any of them have a fill menorah, but uh, that's unique. But they light the menorah, and they don't know that the light of the world has come. They sing songs, Maud, Sur Yeshua Ti, the rock who saved me. <laughs> but they don't know that that rock is Christ. Rocks. The rocks will cry out, Pastor Phil was saying. There's a third miracle here in the text. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So this preserving power that Jesus is talking about identifies the power that he has with the power of the Father, God himself. And in case they weren't understanding that, Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. That's the miracle of Emmanuel. We see Hanukkah and Christmas coming together now. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, you know what that is? That's chutzpah. You know what chutzpah means? Holy guts. <laughs> and Jesus had them in more ways than one. Think about what he's doing here. He's choosing Hanukkah to go into the temple and claim to be deity. What did Antiochus do? He went into the temple and he said, I am what? Epiphanes. I am God manifest. And the Jews said, you're Epimenes, which means crazy in the head, and they drove him out of the temple. And that's Hanukkah. And now Jesus chooses the same occasion to come in and to say, I am God. The I and the Father are one. And, you know, some people say, well, that's not what he really meant. I mean, he was just talking about, you know, being, being one of purpose, you know. Like, we're all, when we follow God, we're all one with God, right? Is that what Jesus was saying? No, not at all. Verse 31, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They knew what he was saying. They knew what he was talking about. Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles. Here's the second time. He mentions miracles three times in this section. 
Many great miracles from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? Oh, we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Why? Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Well, they were right about half of it. He was claiming to be God, but he was not a mere man, you see. The prophecy of the angel to Joseph in Matthew 1 refers back again to the gospel of Isaiah. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, Jesus, the servant, because he will, Yeshua, his people from their sins, a play on words right there. In verse 22, Matthew tells us all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said, what the Lord had said through the prophet, which prophet? Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I and the Father are one. The miracle of Emmanuel. It really was prophesied. It was really predicted by the Jewish prophets. It's there in the text over and over and over again. And when he finally comes, those false shepherds who don't hear his voice, who don't believe, what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. Now, Pastor Phil, where do you keep your pile of stones for heretics here in the sanctuary? Now, look, this is a beautiful sanctuary. I remember when this place was built. And the way it's been decorated, gorgeous. But it doesn't quite compare to the beauty of one of the seven wonders of the world, that beautiful temple in Jerusalem, which they didn't have just one or two custodians. They had a whole tribe of them, hundreds of guys who were in there cleaning up so they didn't have stones laying around haphazardly on the floor. What was going on here? Back to the story of Hanukkah. The other problem the Maccabees had when they went and recaptured and rededicated the temple was not only the oil, but they had the altar problem. You see, because that pig that had been sacrificed on the altar the blood of the animal, the unclean animal, had soaked down into that porous limestone. And so it was defiled, so much so that they knew they had to build a new one. And they did. They built a new one. But then the problem of what to do with the old one, because it was still a sacred object. They couldn't just take it and toss it out into the valley of Hinnom like the rest of the refuse of Jerusalem. So after much argument... What they decided to do was to break it up piece by piece. And then they put it in Solomon's colonnade, you see. And they said, when the prophet comes, he'll tell us what to do with the stones. What irony. When the prophet comes, he'll tell us what to do with the stones. And now... The prophet has come. The light of the world has come. The one who sustains to the uttermost, those who follow him, has come. And he goes 
And he walks into Solomon's colonnade, and he says, I'm Emmanuel. I'm the fulfillment of all the hope and all the promise of all the prophets that have gone before. I am God with you. And there were some there who bent down to pick up stones to stone him. See, the Bible tells us that every knee is going to bow. And some, even today, are bowing to pick up the stone. Jesus said, either you're for me or you're against me. May we and may Jewish people bend the knee and bow, not to the stone, but may we bend the knee and bow in praise and worship to the light of the world, the sustainer of our souls, to Emmanuel. Amen. Pastor Philip.